You are Locked On Ravens, your daily Baltimore Ravens podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. And we return here with another episode of Locked On Ravens. I am your host, Kevin Ostreicher of Ravens Wire. Of course, we're here on the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. We're free and available on all platforms. And thank you for making Locked On Ravens your first listen of the day. And here we are. It is Taco Tuesday. And that means we have our Taco Tuesday guest in Spencer Schultz of Baltimore Beatdown. Spencer, a ton to get into today, but we didn't talk after that Super Bowl. It was a good one. How are you doing today? Doing quite well. You're exactly right. The Super Bowl, really, that entire playoffs, uh, the, the divisional round, the conference championships, and the Super Bowl. Uh, saw a ton of close games, final scores at the end of regulation and stops and things of that nature that made it really exciting. So it was a really fun cap to a really fun season. And here we are in the offseason officially. New league year coming in a couple weeks. We got the combine right around the corner feels like it is sooner than it has ever been in relation to the Super Bowl probably because of that extra week but we're ready for it the NFL cycle never stops and so we keep coming back every single week for talking ball yeah and for the Ravens we'll we'll get into what they have been looking for and should look for during this 2022 scouting combine and over their last millions of combines it feels like honestly but Spencer for the Super Bowl I've kind of been gathering takeaways from a lot of different people about just what they took away from it from a Ravens perspective. So whether that was on the offensive line, on the defensive side of the ball, quarterback wise, I feel like every Super Bowl you can kind of take away from the two teams playing things that, you know, for us, the Ravens could do better or could look to do or have done and they should continue to do that. So with this Rams team, with this Bengals team and how they played in this game, what were your takeaways from a Ravens perspective? Yeah, I think one of the major ones is that the what I like to call, quote unquote, the offense is working and you can tell by success. You got Zach Taylor and Sean McVay, who both like to run that wide zone boot offense. You also see Kyle Shanahan runs the same thing. So three of those four championship teams were wide zone boot offenses. And we see a couple more Tennessee uh, trickled in there. The Packers do that to a degree. So that offense has had a lot of success and. Uh, continues you know Cleveland also runs it Minnesota Vikings a couple other teams that are relatively competitive so I think if you're looking for an offense to get kind of a home base and find a little bit of success right now it feels like that one caters itself to making things easy on quarterbacks at times the Bengals themselves don't always run the boot aspect of that but they do run a ton of wide zone um, so that was one takeaway another one is that got to have some dominant pass rushers and have to have guys that you know uh, are going to consistently create chaos you're not going to find an Aaron Donald because there's only a handful of humans in the 75 years of NFL football that are remotely relevant to Aaron Donald. But overall, you know, go look at the New York Giants from back in the day, even that were able to take down the Patriots, their four man rush. They had the Buccaneers last year, these different teams that have found success. It feels like having a, a dominant front four really is able to wreak havoc. And we saw the Bengals, Trey Hendrickson obviously had a heck of a year. And uh, Sam Hubbard, you know, kind of balanced things out a little bit on the other side. Larry Ogunjobi was not able to play, but he was a major factor for the uh, Bengals as well. Someone who's been maybe the most underrated interior pass rusher in football. One of the few guys that can consistently get sacks from that zero or one tech. Uh, So that was a big loss for them. But ultimately, uh, Super Bowl that came down to being able to throw the ball, cover the pass and get pressure and protect. And the Bengals couldn't protect. 
Um, you know, all those aspects of throwing the football really mattered. And for the Ravens, they're going to have to cover Jamar Chase and T Higgins and uh, Tyler Boyd and whoever else the Bengals are able to, to wrangle in there with tons of cap space and tons of picks. So the Ravens need to be able to match up with those guys and be able to get pressure. The Bengals have a ton of money to reload their offensive line and figure things out up front. So uh, you're going to have to figure out a way to compete with that. And how did the Rams do it? They, they got pressure. They took advantage of those weaknesses. And ultimately, I think my biggest takeaway is that whatever your imbalance is, um, and, and I kind of like to measure it to weightlifting, you know, if you're someone who focuses too much on your quads and not enough on your hamstrings, your hamstrings are going to blow out eventually. And the same thing will happen with a football team in the playoffs. And the Ravens, you know, the last couple of years, they haven't been able to throw the ball consistently. Uh, in the postseason, the Bengals, they were able to mitigate some loss in terms of not having guys up front for their offensive line that were able to consistently, you know, give Joe Burrow enough time to really do some damage. And it bit them in the end. They lost because of that. Uh, they made had an amazing run. You know, I think that a lot of people are going to look at the Bengals and have a lot of takeaways. And they did have a great postseason run, but they were a 10-win team in a 17-game season. You know, they they lost to the Jets, lost a couple other times. So Overall, getting hot at the right time, being able to play some complimentary balanced football is great. But when you do have one of those true deficiencies as a team in one of your units, it will get exposed at some point in the playoffs. And Joe Burrow was able to win a, a game in which he was sacked nine times. You know, they were they were able to have play defense and hold the other team as well. But in the end, you can't have that imbalanced talent. And a lot of coaches, more so now when these schemes are starting to kind of mesh together again when it feels like uh you know there was the west coast trends and then there was the under center pro style offenses and that sort of game and then the rules now have dictated to a more spread style and we're seeing some some wide zone boot as well as a lot of option football rpo so it, it feels like it's started to mesh back together again where a lot of teams are starting to have similar schemes uh run a lot of the same things so in the end talent is going to prevail and the ravens didn't have enough of it this last year this past year um, they didn't have enough on the offensive side of the football two, three years ago. So it's, it's time to inject some playmakers, some impact players. It feels like Tom Brady as of now, at least finally gone, you know, going to, going to not be going to Super Bowls and winning championships. So, uh, they're, they're you're going to see a lot of teams, a lot more parody. It feels like a lot more teams going to championship games, winning championship games in the Super Bowl, uh, a little bit more parody than, than we've seen in the Tom Brady era, I would say, uh, especially the last like 10 years or so. So. I think it's going to be really interesting to to watch how players start to dictate more than maybe they did at certain times a couple of years ago in terms of just having, you know, Jalen Ramsey, Aaron Donald, Von Miller, all these guys on one side of the football, they're going to make plays. They're going to be able to push you through a postseason. Um, Aaron Donald ultimately propelling the Rams to a Super Bowl. And we'll, we'll do that for my actual final takeaway is that Aaron Donald is that dude, man. He He really is. I can't say enough about, how I feel like he even isn't appreciated to the same level of even guys like Ray Lewis and Ed Reed. Maybe it's because the Rams are, you know, in a new city and some things like that. But Aaron Donald is one of the best football players of all time. Uh, he's, you know, no worse than maybe the second best player in the league uh, overall. And anytime, I don't, I don't think there's anything that can be argued. So Aaron Donald, I'm glad he got a ring and was really fun to watch. And he made back-to-back -back plays. Uh, the, the play before the final play for the Bengals, he made a huge stop on third and one to force that fourth down uh, bench pressed with one arm extended peaked and made a tackle to force the Bengals into that do or die fourth down. And they, they died. So Aaron Donald did it, made the play, won the game. 
about that moment with Sean McVay saying Aaron's going to make a play was awesome. And uh, he did. It's, it's nice to have guys like that and you can't really find them too often. So you got to appreciate them while they're here. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I also think having your best players on the field when it matters is very important. You know, obviously some HP Ryan gets that carry on third and one. He's on the field for fourth down as well. I don't think there was anything wrong with Joe Mixon at that point. And he had gashed the Rams a couple of times there, especially later in the game. And I thought that both teams, I mean, look, the Rams could not run the ball at all. I mean, the Bengals did a phenomenal job at making the Rams offense one dimensional. And you kind of sense the shift once Odell Beckham went out, the, the Rams passing offense. I mean, you have Cooper Cup, obviously, but then you're trusting Van Jefferson. You're trusting a couple other guys there. And the Bengals defense did their job for the most part. Now, obviously, Eli Apple, and obviously that's a controversial name by itself. You know, him on Cooper Cup at the end there. Don't really love that matchup if you're a Bengals fan, obviously. But look, I think that all things considered, I thought the Bengals are winning that game. You know, it was really, I thought that the Rams offense was not going to be able to get anything. But then Matthew Stafford, Cooper Cup, you know, they get a couple of big plays from a couple of guys who were unexpected heroes. A couple of things turn your way and you can turn to that defense at the end of the game with an Aaron Donald, who, again, having those top flight playmakers, the Ravens, Lost a lot of theirs, as you talked about. Now, they don't have anybody close to Aaron Donald because I don't think any team has anything close to Aaron Donald on that defensive line. But it's about building the trenches. That's my main takeaway here because you see what the Rams did on their defensive line, what the Bengals did stopping the Rams' run game. Obviously, the Bengals didn't protect Joe Burrow, and that was a key factor as to why. I mean, you see that that angle of the last play where Jamar Chase beats Jalen Ramsey falls down. And if Joe Burrow has a second or two longer – he can find them deep, and that's a go-ahead touchdown at that point. So the Ravens building their trenches, I think, is so huge. We've seen what Lamar Jackson can do as a confident thrower in the pocket when he has an offensive line that protects him instead of scrambling, speeding up that decision-making clock. And I think that's part of the reason why against Miami, everything kind of fell apart was because, one, Jackson made some bad decisions. It's not all on the offensive line. But, two, the offensive line plays a part in that, and surrounding Jackson with that talent will help him, I think, make better decisions go through his reads, progress, and with the talent the Ravens have, hopefully getting J.K. Dobbins, Gus Edwards back at full strength, having Marquise Brown, Rashad Bateman, and Devin DuVernay, and all those other young receivers. And can't forget Mark Andrews, obviously. That's a big part of what the Ravens do on offense. We'll head into our first breakdown. When we get back, we'll flip over to the scouting combine, talk about what the Ravens have looked for historically and should look for in this upcoming combine. So stay tuned for that. And we'll be right back. Football might be over this season, but basketball is in full strength for both pro and college hoops. From all the latest odds, totals, player performance, props to where the next fire coach is going to land. BetOnline.net is the number one spot for all your sports betting needs. BetOnline remains the best spot for all your sports scores, podcasts, and news this season. And it's not just basketball. BetOnline.net is your source for hockey, boxing, and UFC. Right to the Olympic coverage and information. So it's the website today or use your mobile device to learn more about the trends and action. BetOnline, where the game starts. We're back here with our second segment of Locked On Ravens. Kevin Ostrecker, your host, still here with Spencer Schultz of Baltimore Beatdown. And Spencer, the combine is rapidly approaching. Now, we did have the news come down that the NFL was unbubbling everything and being much, much more lenient with their rules, which I think is great. I think they did the right thing by doing that. But in terms of the actual drills and the intangibles that are going to be measured here at this combine, there are a lot of things that different teams look for in terms of what they look for out of prospects, in terms of how they measure, what they test. And the Ravens historically have had those thresholds 
you know, sometimes they're hard thresholds where it's, we're absolutely not going to take a player who is below this. Sometimes it's more of a soft one where they'll make some exceptions. But Spencer, I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on this, but my overall question here is, what, in your opinion, has been a couple of things that the Ravens have historically looked for out of certain positions, whether it is testing or intangibles? And based off of your opinions of what has worked for the Ravens, what has not worked, or just your personal opinion of what you've seen, what do you think they should look for this time around? Certainly. The Ravens on both sides of the football where I think there is a deep draft class for these two positions and also a need that the Ravens have ahead of free agency as well as the draft are offensive tackle and edge rusher um, or edge defender. And both of those positions, the Ravens have had types. And for the offensive tackle, the Ravens have not drafted an offensive tackle with under 34-inch arms since Ramon Harewood, taking it all the way back then. Um, So the Ravens really, really seem to value arm length. And the grand irony of that is that Patrick McCarry, who has, uh, I think, 1% 1% is is it within the bottom 1% of arm length with 30 inch arms, a little bit over 30 inch arms uh, ends up being a really good player for them. So I think that kind of spit in the face a little bit. Uh, I think that guys ultimately, you know, have different aspects that can make up for deficiencies. McCary has really quick feet. He can move his frame a lot quicker than bigger guys who have longer arms. So his margin for error is going to be lower with length, but he's also giving himself more margin for error because he's moving his feet a little bit quicker. He's a little more nimble. Um, So, you know, he's going to have some issues with arm length there. You know, Von Miller eventually got him and talked about how he thought he was one of the best right tackles in football, actually, uh, when he played him that second time with the, with the Rams. So that's an interesting one. Uh, Arm length overall has, has really been a, a extremely valued, offensive tackle play for the Ravens, obviously Ronnie Stanley, Orlando Brown Jr., those guys, huge, huge, huge wingspan. So that's one that uh, is interesting, but I I think it just requires more context. We go see uh, Rashawn Slater and Penny Sewell last year. Neither of them had great arm length. Uh, The Ravens haven't drafted someone with Rashawn Slater's arm length in a decade since Ramon Harewood, and he ends up being an elite, you know, awesome left tackle as a rookie in year one. So I think that There's just more context needed there. Uh, The Ravens have really valued, and this is a little different from the combine, but the Ravens had only drafted one edge rusher. I believe it was John Simon who had under nine and a half sacks in college uh, dating back to uh, the John in the John Harbaugh era. So they really value that production. We see guys like Jalen Ferguson. Then they go against that last year and they go draft at the time, Jason Owe. Now we know he's a Dafe Owe and proud to have his, his true name out there. And uh, they bet on an athlete and it worked. And I think that you can see the production was almost there at Penn State. The pressures were there. There wasn't any sacks. Everybody had this huge qualm across that. Uh, I was think it was seven games in 2020. OA goes without having any sacks in a shortened COVID season and then ends up immediately getting, a, I think, a strip sack in week one against the Raiders and continuing to be a force. Does he still have some work to do? Yes. But overall, I think betting on athleticism is better than betting on production um, for for edge rushers. There's thresholds there of 10-yard splits, arm length, of uh, vert, of uh, three-cone as well. And so I think trying to stay under that 6'9 three-cone, under a or over a 35-inch vertical, I think having a 10-yard split under 1.6, and having a broad jump over 10 feet. I think those are all metrics that the Ravens should look to if you want to find explosive pass rushers. Those are things that guys 
are, are showing you in first step explosion and quickness and being able to get guys to have snap anticipation ultimately will lend itself to finding productive players in that edge department. So I think that's two areas where the Ravens had a type, so to speak. And I think Adafi Owe was a direct beeline away from what the Ravens had previously done, what they did with the Jalen Ferguson type. So they ultimately bet on athleticism and bet on, you know, a strong run defender with that kind of athleticism. He ends up uh, of all true edge defenders while Michael Parsons obviously played there a lot and, and was a more dominant player, but led that led all rookie edge defenders and pressures and threw in a couple sacks there as well. You know, he kind of uh, had a shoulder injury down the stretch there, but I think looking at what happened with OA is really important for that edge rushing position. There's thresholds that really tend to lean themselves athletically to being successful in the NFL as a pass rusher. So I think that production should be valued a little bit less and those athletic traits should be valued a little bit more. Of course, you know, you don't want to just draft someone who has no experience there, has nothing, you know, as a run defender, anything of the sort. But, um, you know, you end up coming across maybe a guy like Adafi or excuse me, across a guy like David Ajabo, who might end up having all of those things. And that might be a slam dunk pick for the Ravens at 14, if that's the case. So, um, you know, avoiding those previous biases that haven't really proved to, to be outstanding. I mean, uh, you know, the arm length thing, I, I can understand to a degree, but there's just more context there. So I think not, I think looking outside of your type is the most important general thing the Ravens can do. Of course, you are going to have scheme fits and you're going to have certain things, but making sure that you're not eliminating guys because of just one measurement or one threshold instead of ultimately looking at the totality of the player and what their margin for error might be. And I think that's what it comes down to, you know, guys who are a little bit faster uh, in their 10 yard split are going to have a little bit more margin for error because of their first step in their technique. Um, where someone else who maybe doesn't have that is going to have to be more technically advanced with their hands because they might not be able to beat guys with that first step or that second step. Offensive tackles, the same thing, like I said, with McCarry, you know, uh, can a guy put himself in a position consistently where his length isn't debilitating him? Um, so, you know, you want those margins for errors, especially in the early rounds, but looking towards some athletic outliers overall, I think is always good business in the NFL, looking towards those combine freaks that have a little bit of solid tape and while they might have some inconsistencies or things, uh, you know, those guys are going to end up having those higher ceilings and lending themselves to being proven players. RAS has become huge. Uh, Kent Platt does a great job with the entire relative athletic score and figuring out those elite athletes have a much higher hit rate. Uh, it's, it's, you know, athleticism reigns supreme in the NFL. So overall, just bet on good athletes and you're going to have a better shot. You know, give the nod to the better athlete, especially defensively, it feels like, and in that edge department. So I think those are a couple of things the Ravens can do and, and walk away with profit from. Yeah, I think it's totally okay that, you know, the Ravens and other teams, they have these things that they look for and they value. But I think it's also important to look at the metrics, look at how it has worked and not necessarily say, all right, this hasn't worked 10 times in a row or the teams are having success with it. We're going to keep doing it regardless. You know, it's okay to kind of go away from that grain a little bit and experiment with it and see what works, see what doesn't. But yeah, I think, you know, the arm length thing is something where it's, they love the guys who have that outstanding reach, but you mentioned the McCary example and Rashawn Slater and all these other guys who, you know, not everybody who has short arms is going to be a great tackle. Not everybody who has long arms is going to be a great tackle. You know, there's always a, a certain skill level you have to take into account multiple different things. So I agree with you. I'm not necessarily writing somebody off because of one measurement or one thing like that. I want to take that whole picture into account, but Spencer, something that's a very interesting, I guess, topic is looking at a certain test at this combine. How, do you personally value 
the 40 yard dash. Now the 40 yard dash is one of the more like popular events at the combine for everybody who watches, they look for that straight line speed, but it is, it's very different for a 40 yard dash for someone at play speed who was running, you know, sideline to sideline or doing this or running to a defender or to an, an offensive guy. It's different than just running a straight line 40 yard dash. So how do you personally value that? Yeah, I think there's a couple positions that are interesting, like interior defensive linemen, um, a couple of the, the bigger boys where, and, and like I said, edge rusher, where you can really look, especially at that 10 yard split um, a little bit more so than the 40. But if someone's able to run a four, eight at over 300 pounds, they're an elite, elite, elite level athlete. You look at a Trent Williams or something like that. If someone is of that mass and can move like that, Aaron Donald's another one who had out, an outstanding 40. There are some outliers there that I think it kind of allows you to not overlook guys. Um, and especially guys that are at the top of the class, when they go punch in a really solid 40 for their position with a really great 10 yard split, I think you're going to be in good shape, you know, just with their level of athleticism, you kind of just get that stamp of approval on it a little bit. But to me, the 10 yard split is a little more accurate. Um, I also like to just generally look at GPS times from zebra technology, you know, at the senior bowl, it was really nice to have and seeing that exact place, but a guy like Tariq Woolen out of UTSA, a long, strong corner, he was hitting 22 miles an hour consistently. So if you can do that on the football field, I don't really need to know what your 40 is. But, you know, it, it's nice. It's good context. It adds, you know, a little bit there. But I really think the 10-yard split, especially for guys that start in a stance, um, you, know, receive, you know, receivers or offensive linemen or defensive linemen, seeing what they can do in those first few steps, in those first four, five, six steps, is, is going to give you a solid idea of their explosiveness off the ball. Um, so I, I like having that context there a little bit. Again, Adafe a great example. You know, who knows what he would have run at the combine, but absolutely kills it. Michael Parsons absolutely kills it as well. Two guys that can win with speed. They can challenge tackles upfield. Um, so it's, it's going to force those tackles into that vertical set a little with a little more urgency. And that lends itself to inside counters or being off balance or not hitting their comfortable set point or things like that. Um, so it's a little different, you know, pursuit speed is looking at not running in a straight line most likely and, and trying to, you know, hit, hit the right thing. So I don't know that that, you know, how, how fast the guy can run to tackle someone is a little different. And that's why I like to lend uh, my, my favoritism towards those GPS times that we get out of games and practices and senior bowls and things of that nature. So, um, you know, the 40 can disqualify guys to a degree. I mean, you go, you go, there's just certain thresholds for things where guys who are over 250 pounds and run under a four, six, five, in the last few drafts, it's been like T.J. Watt. For the last like decade, it's been like T.J. Watt, Demarcus Ware, Tyus Bowser, who hasn't turned into a prolific player, but he's a good player. Um, some some interesting things like that. So Adafi always another one. So uh, Rashawn Gary, guys that can just really punch the clock, hit it, hit it at bigger sizes, is a little more impressive to me. Most receivers are going to be hitting four five, four four, whatever it is. So you, that's kind of a prerequisite to play the position. And um, yep. There's no, there's no corner. There's only one corner. I think that has had more than five starts in the last five seasons who ran slower than a five six or a four, six. And it was Cam Dantzler out of Mississippi state. So there are outliers. There are certain thresholds and kind of rule guys out a little bit. And uh, I think give you some insight, but again, it's just context. It's not hit or miss or uh, the end of the world. You know, Devin Duvernay, for example, runs, I think four, three, eight, four, three, nine at the combine has hit some of the top speeds in the NFL ahead of guys that have run four, three, two, 427, whatever it is, hitting 21, 22 miles an hour. So 
um, you know, play speed is a little different. And again, finally, just that's why I like those GPS times a little better. Yeah, the, the game speed aspect is very important. And I also agree with you in terms of explosiveness, because in those first, yeah, what, anywhere from three, four, five, six steps, I mean, you can see that get off and how they're able to get off the snap, which I think is a very important aspect of that whole thing. It's not just the, oh, this guy's fast or this guy's slow. There are a couple other things you can take into account in that drill. And that's really with all the drills, or at least most of them with the combine, it's not just a set hey, this drill only tests speed and this drill only tests agility. There are a bunch of different things to go into all these. And I think that's what makes these drills really valuable for players who are looking to up their stock because even if they don't perform amazing in certain aspects of the drills, they can still have positive takeaways based off of other things that come with them. But we'll head into our final break here. When we get back, we're diving into a couple of prospects that could be Ravens targets at pick number 14. So stay tuned for that and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Rock Auto. With the ever-increasing numbers of makes and models, it's now impossible for your local chain auto parts store to stock all the parts you need. Wind off from pointless or seemingly intimidating questioning is wait while the person behind the counter orders the parts on their computer. Choosing the only brand the warehouse happens to carry. You have computers with access to rockauto.com at home and in your pocket. You can save time and money when using Rock Auto. Rock Auto is a family business serving do-it-yourselfers for over 20 years, and their prices are alive below for every customer. So go to rockauto.com right now and see other parts available for your car or truck. Right, locked on there. How'd you hear about us, Box? So they know we sent you amazing selection, alive below prices, all the parts your car will ever need. Rockauto.com. We're back here. Our final segment of Taco Tuesday. Here on Locked On Ravens, Kevin Ostriker still here with Spencer Schultz. And Spencer, the draft is still a bit, a bit of ways away, but that doesn't mean we can't continue to talk about these prospects as the Ravens hold the number 14 overall pick. It's a pretty high up pick for them over the course of their franchise history. They've only had a few that have been higher than that. So this is a very important draft for them, obviously 10 draft selections, but that first round pick I think is very important for them to get right. And there are a couple of guys who I know a lot of people have had their eyes on, both defensive guys we'll talk about here today. David Ajabo was one of them, the edge out of Michigan. Now, obviously, the Michigan connection is very real between the Ravens and the University of Michigan with John Harbaugh and Jim Harbaugh being brothers, both the head coaches over there at their respective teams. And obviously, Mike McDonald now is in, or at least I'll say back in Baltimore, as he's that new defensive coordinator. Ajabo has ties to him. Ajabo also has ties to Adafi Owe. It seems like he is somebody who is just scratching the surface of his potential and what he has shown has been incredible. And so he's an option for them at number 14. The other guy is in the secondary at Andrew Booth Jr., who Booth is somebody who is one of the top flight corner prospects in this draft. Now, there are a couple of those guys. There is a very, I'm not going to say top heavy because it is a deep cornerback class, but at the top, you have guys like Sauce Gardner and Booth and Derek Stingley and Trent McDuffie. You have talented players who are going to go early in the first round. So, Spencer, what are your kind of breakdowns of both these guys and how they can fit in Baltimore? And if you would personally spend the 14th pick on them if they were available. Yeah, so the first guy I want to talk about is Andrew Booth Jr., former five-star, insane athlete. You see rare and unique feats on the football field, and I think has some similarities in terms of tenacity to Marlon Humphrey, his ability to click and close against screens or perimeter run concepts. Routinely, dogs, stock blockers, if you come with a weak, low-effort stock block, he will hit through you into a ball carry and use you to make a tackle. Um, I think a striker is a good word that comes to mind to define him, to define him and just consistently really competitive. Uh, I think that he also has elite feet and balance in his backpedal. Uh, he can do this really rare 
I don't know the right word to describe it, but this really rare false open is, I guess, the best way to put it, where when he's in his backpedal and a receiver starts to show a hesitation inside or a stutter or tries to lie to him with their release in some way, he can kick his feet out really wide without opening his hips. And because his feet have this rare ability to, to find kind of that home balance point uh, with every single step, he can kind of false open his feet without opening his hips. So he can bring his hips in neutral, but his feet don't. Um, it's something that uh, you, you saw against Alabama a good bit. Um, something, you, or excuse me, something you saw against Georgia a good bit uh, on the boundary one-on-one against some guys and was, was really, 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 really rare and weird to see. Um, so I think that his feet are really spectacular overall. And the final thing that he has is ball skills. He's going to jump 40 inches, I think. Uh, he has made highlight top 10 web, web gem one-handed spectacular interceptions. He's also routinely levitated through the air to go get pass breakups and just has really good ball skills overall. A guy that, you know, wouldn't be crazy to see him get snaps on offense at some point at Clemson or uh, in the NFL for fun at some point, because he's just that kind of guy. I don't think he quite is like a Trayvon Diggs in terms of hands or anything, but we'll have a lot more ball skills and confidence attacking and high pointing footballs than we see from some of the Ravens corners that are not named Marcus Peters over the last few years. Um, I think that, you know, weakness wise, so to speak, he, he does, you know, does rely on his balance almost to a, a crazy degree at times. And I think some really advanced route runners could take him because of that. Um, you can see him get, you know, prematurely turned with those feet a little bit and it can kind of set up a long string of moves, but uh, it, it takes some pretty advanced route runners. He wants to be really physical at the line of scrimmage. I think he's still improving there. He does, you know, want to be really have a lot of anticipation. He wants to play with a lot of uh, ins instincts or predetermined reads at times. Uh, so those things all, you know, can lend themselves to some mistakes, but I think he is a really solid prospect and is going to ultimately be a starter very, very, very early on. I could see him maybe being your third corner for a bit in his rookie season and uh, sliding into a starting spot. And I think eventually he's just going to make spectacular plays that are rare and unique ultimately. And again, he's a five-star guy. I think he had like a 3.9 GPA. I think he was all ACC academic, um, a, a dude that is very highly spoken about and has five-star intangibles, five-star measurables, all those kinds of things. He has burst. He has all these things. I, I would say that he's a little more explosive than he is fast in terms of long speed, but ultimately a really fun prospect to watch. And he just jumps off the tape. At the end of the day, you're, you see an impact player at Clemson, someone who looks above and beyond his opponents and his teammates at times. Um, so I, I think that he's going to be a really, really, really rare player in certain situations. I don't know that he's his consistency kind of deep and at the top of routes that are late developing or a little more advanced. I don't know that he's going to be elite immediately or ever will, but I think he's a really good corner. That's going to ultimately be a, a long time starter and give you a lot of ball production, give you physicality and make big plays at big times. So uh, again, you know, he can get a little lost deep, but Things can be worked on. Guys can get a little smarter. And from, from everything that I've ever read or heard, he sounds like he's a very high-end academic kind of guy that loves, loves, loves to study football and study everything around him. So um, I'm willing to bet on those. If those are the case, teams will know better than me and have those internal conversations. But to me, he looks like someone that just can do rare things that pop consistently. And then moving on to David Ajabo. I mean, the frame is really rare. Uh, he kind of reminds me of a thicker Brian Burns in a way. 
Um, he is listed currently. We'll see what it is, but around six, five. So we'll see maybe six, four, uh, 250 in that department, 250 pounds and red shirt sophomore ends up being the scout, uh, defensive player of the year in 2019 for Michigan. So I think that goes to show as someone who's only been playing football for about five years at this point goes to show the, the level of intensity, the level of level of skill and athleticism that he has, the level of talent that he has to be able to go stick out like that in 2019 as a freshman. And what he was doing with his red shirt year uh, was launching himself at people from, from everything that I've heard. Uh, not a great run defender. We'll start there. So Odafe away, you know, the Ravens typically in, in Wink Martindale's defense, and we, we're going to see some overlap with Mike McDonald, but there's the rush, there's the Sam. Uh, the Sam is going to be the, the type that can drop into coverage a little bit more, has a little bit more speed to the sidelines and things like that. Uh, and the rush is going to be the strong side defender that is going to align over tight ends and stack and shed and make plays in the run game. So pairing him with OA, while they do have some similarities, uh, I think that they are a good yin and yang. I would like to see OA use a little bit more strength as a pass rusher, but we're talking about Ojabo. So the, the fit with them, I see Ojabo being the, the Sam in – third down situations or in these, these heavy situations that are going to lead towards pass. And he just has really, mm, what's the right word? Really efficient pass rushes. Every step you can see his pistons and his elbows and his knees are in perfect unison. So he takes three steps, gains a ton of ground and has this just loose uh, basketball driven sort of ability to just hezzy on guys and be on skates and just urgently change. He can spin inside. He can spin outside. He can speed swipe. He can speed rip. Um, we see a little bit of a bull rush that's there. So he, he just really can use these sort of unorthodox movements to get guys to punch early or not punch at all. And then attack. Um, he can stick his face mask into, into a tackles chest and drive them back a little bit. He Ultimately, the biggest reason for David Ajabo is because he turns pressures into sacks. He is a finisher. He, there are, I, I, I hate to throw a guy under the bus, but Justin Matabike to me is a guy that wants to beat his blocker and doesn't quite have the understanding of how to turn a win into a sack. Ojabo turns a ridiculously high level of his wins into sacks. He is playing to get the quarterback and has a really great feel for it, a really great game plan for what it takes to get hands on a quarterback and get them down. Um, you see this kind of, you know, fourth and fifth gear that he's able to hit at the top of his speed rushes where he can really round out. You see some impressive, impressive pursuit speed as well, not to the degree of OA, but definitely able to uh, do some, some magical things there. Obviously the downside and the reason the Ravens drafted OA in the first round last year was because they were so confident with him as a run defender and keeping him on the field there. So with Ajabo, it's going to be the opposite. You're going to want to ease him in a little bit more, um, but you do again see him taking on blocks better with better technique, more efficiently. So I think his workouts at Michigan are going to be really key for the Ravens to take someone like that at 14. Uh, I've already talked about Jermaine Johnson a lot, who's the polar opposite. You're getting a three down player immediately. Uh, but the rare and unique ability that Ojabo has as a pass rusher is just fun to watch. One of my favorite moments of his was in one of his worst games against Penn State this past year. He was kind of getting beaten up a little bit, not able to uh, execute. It felt like he was maybe tired, maybe hurt, maybe sick a little, something. It just wasn't his day. 
And late in the, in the second quarter in two minute drill, he just unloads, has a vicious, vicious, vicious outside move and goes and gets a strip sack and kicks Penn state out of a scoring opportunity. So he has the ability to win in impact moments. He has ability to win when he is not playing well. You see it consistently, you know, he might lose a couple reps. It does not deter him. He doesn't stay in funks for very long. And you can just tell that he has a lot of intensity to him and is able to ultimately win and turn sacks in big moments and, and really hit quarterbacks with force. He's a great fit for where the football is in the quarterback's kind of carriage. So all of those things I think make him a really rare player. And I just see him progressing more and more. I, I, I missed on Brian Burns. I will say I had a second round grade on Brian Burns and I see so much of Ojabo in uh, or so much of Brian Burns in Ojabo, but he's a lot bigger. Um, he has a lot thicker trunk. You can kind of see the, the haunches, the, the lower leg area. He's got a trunk to him. So I think he's going to be able to continue getting better with hand placement and anticipation and understanding some things in the run game. But at the end of the day, at this point, uh, you know, the Ravens have a great scheme or have had a great scheme to stop the run. They, they always have, you know, great tackling DBs and things, even though this past year was not a great indictment of that, but they're able to figure it out. John Harbaugh's teams can play the run. So if you put a guy like a job on the field, you can kind of win around him a little bit. If, if he takes some time to develop and you're not quite comfortable, I think he'll be able to get there eventually, but you know, the, the effort is there. The intensity is there. The pursuit speed is there. So again, I, I think it speaks volumes that he was the scout player of the year in 2019 as a redshirt freshman, three years into his football career. Uh, that, that tells me that he brings it in practice and football is a practice sport. You'll get better in practice, especially when you're a little bit raw. So uh, to me, two very, High impact players in Booth and Ajabo that pop. When you're watching tape, even if you're just watching someone else on their team or watching an opposing team, you will be like, oh, who is that? Multiple times. And that's the easiest thing to scout. When guys are making an impact consistently and then trying to understand if it's something that they're doing that is going to transfer to the NFL. So when you see guys like that that just consistently pop over and over again, you got yourself some, some ballers. Um, I, I see consistent talent above other guys on the football field, they're playing at a high level. And I think both of these guys are first round players. I'm going to have a first round grade on both and ultimately think that they're going to end up being uh, dynamic in the NFL to a certain degree while they do have some things to work on. Yeah, it seems like both those guys would be really good selections at number 14 if they're still there. I know Ajabo's gotten top of the first round hype and I know Booth is, has gotten the same thing. And I know when looking at actual where do they fit from a need perspective? Obviously, Baltimore, they employ the best player available strategy as well as they're going to take for some needs. But I mean, the edge rusher position for the Ravens, Justin Houston's a free agent. Pernod McPhee is a free agent. Jalen Ferguson hasn't given them a ton. Tyus Bowser tore his Achilles. It's really Adafi Owe and Dalen Hayes, who's coming off of injury concerns himself this past season. So the, the edge rusher position, I think, is more of a need than some people realize it is. And if the Ravens decide to re-sign Houston and and maybe Pernod McPhee comes back, I don't really know about that, though, they still would need some guys in there because I feel like they just need a little bit more oomph in that room, and I think Ajabo would give that. And then obviously for corners, we don't really know what's going to happen with Anthony Avett right now. It seems like if he gets a big money offer from somewhere, the Ravens probably with their cap situation, which isn't horrible, but they don't have as much spending room as some other teams, he might be on the way out. Tavon Young, some people have mentioned him as a cap casualty. I don't believe that's the right move, but to each their own there. And, you know, same thing with Marcus Peters. I, again, don't think that's the right move. But even so, you're kind of looking at a need there as well, because what happens with Jimmy Smith? 
Is he going to retire? Is he going to come back? He's obviously not the player he once was. But I remember pretty recently those three cornerback-headed monsters, three-headed cornerback monsters, where before it was Jimmy Smith, Brandon Carr, Marlon Humphrey. Then you had Marlon Humphrey, Marcus Peters, Jimmy Smith, where you had three high-level guys who could come in there and spell each other. And then obviously Tavon Young sprinkled in as well as, as the slot guy. So to have a, a trio, let's say it is Humphrey, Peters, and Booth, I think that's a recipe for success for wow success, especially for a team that values their defensive backs and their secondary so much. We've seen the Ravens pour money into their defense, pour money into their secondary. So to get a guy like an Andrew Booth on a rookie contract who can be a quality player on that deal for four, potentially five seasons, I think that's a really good thing to have. Spencer, thank you so much for your insight. That's all I have for you here today on Locked On Ravens. Tell people where they can find you and what you have coming up over these next couple of weeks here. Yeah, getting ready for uh, what we call the Beatdown Big Board on the Baltimore Beatdown Podcast. We will be going through each position group leading up to the draft. Um, obviously not quarterback or some certain other positions that we think the Ravens will avoid, but ultimately trying to compile a board of 16 of the best prospects for the Ravens at pick 14. And then we will do a fan vote and we will work through it ourselves to figure out who is the beat down big board prospect of the year that we think is the best fit for the Ravens in the first round. We did so last year. Uh, the fans found Rashad Bateman. We found Joe Tryon. Um, so Tryon was a couple picks past, but uh, not quite the, the great variance there. But Rashad Bateman, the Ravens end up with him as well. So it's a fun fan experience. I'll be turning out some articles on BaltimoreBeatdown.com. You can find me on Twitter at Ravens for Dummies, all that good stuff. Thank you so much. Make sure to go give Kevin five stars. Share this podcast with a friend. Do all the good stuff. Reward the man who gives you the best daily Ravens coverage. Thanks so much, and I'll talk to you guys next week. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, Spencer. And the links to Spencer's Twitter podcast, it'll all be in the description below. And be sure to check out that Baltimore Beatdown Big Board and the Purple Prospect portfolios. We love the alliteration. The alliteration is everywhere on Baltimore Beatdown. I love it. But that's all I have for you here today on Locked on Ravens. When we get back here tomorrow, we'll be answering your mailbag questions. So stay tuned for that, and I will see you tomorrow.